If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is the Glass Tire podcast where we talk about topical art topics. I'm William Saradet. I'm Jessica Fuentes. And today we are going to use a recent Jerry Saltz talk at the DMA as a jumping off point for some general topics in art, some general ideas, um, and just to see if we kind of agree with Jerry, if we disagree. Um, and also because he's just, uh, you know, such a boisterous ball of energy, he gives us lots to think about. So Jerry Saltz gave a two-hour talk on Thursday, and this podcast will be coming out Sunday. So it's just a couple days after it happened that we're talking to you about this. And it was kind of a usual Jerry affair, Um Lots of pacing around the stage, lots of gesturing with hands, kind of anecdotes that sometimes are relevant to the topic at hand. Sometimes they kind of come out of nowhere. Um, Very entertaining, as always. And so I have just seen Jerry give a presentation at UNT um, a couple months ago before the holidays. Jessica, was this your first experience seeing Jerry Saltz give his his usual lecture? Yeah, it was. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect because I hadn't seen any of his talks either virtually or in person. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised by the energy that you described. Um, that made it really fun and lively even before he was introduced Um, He was sitting in the crowd taking selfies with the full audience, and that was kind of fun and unexpected. Yeah, I think it had just been long enough since I last saw him talk that um, I, too, was just taken aback a little bit by how much energy he has. Um, We were kind of talking before we started recording about you know, whether this is a typical Jerry presentation or not. Um, And you were kind of asking me about what he was like at UNT. Uh, The main difference for me is that I saw the UNT talk live and I saw this talk virtually. There were lots of people in the in the chat log uh, for DMA's YouTube channel saying, thanks for offering this virtual option. Um, And Given that I live in Dallas, it's very feasible for me to go down to the DMA. I still really, really appreciate um, a virtual option. It just lets you be able to participate. Uh, Like maybe if you're getting off of work late and you don't really have time to change and go down, uh, go downtown. That was the main difference from my perspective. I was not sitting in the audience as you were, Jessica. Um, So you got a little bit more of his... His energy just full on. 
As far as the topics that he covered, would you say that that was pretty similar to what you saw at UNT? I know the audiences were quite different because UNT was meant for um, students, art students, um, aspiring and emerging artists, whereas this was a slightly different crowd. So I was curious, um, as somebody who hadn't seen him speak before, if this was very much the same kind of content or if he changed things up a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question because he's known for his talk, like with the capital T almost. Um, And my experience is to say that the energy is definitely there. Like he's definitely got a lot of ideas and memories and experiences. And he's worked with like really interesting people. He said he sees, what, 30 shows a week in New York City. Um, And I got a little jealous because uh, the train is easier to use over there than it is here. So the real caveat here is that you kind of don't know what he's going to say. There's a few constants. He's got some of his kind of like uh, trademark phrases or actions, but you kind of don't know what he's going to muse on or how he's going to link one topic to the next, Uh, which is fun. I I like a lively presentation that's not like completely canned. Um... And yeah, like like you mentioned, Jessica, the UNT talk was very directly aimed at students. It, it felt like a pep talk for young studying artists. And I thought the DMA talk was different than that. But I feel like maybe you have a different perspective on this. Yeah, there were definitely some moments where I felt like he was speaking to a younger audience that wasn't necessarily the full audience at the DMA. Um, He spoke a lot, it seemed, with advice for emerging artists um, about how to approach their work and what to do in life, um, which I think were insightful bits of information. But as I kind of looked around, you know, myself, I'm going to be 40 this year. um, And as I kind of looked around at the crowd, while there were a handful or maybe a dozen or so um, younger people in this space, I felt like I was one of the younger people in the room as well. So that caught me a little off guard because I started to look around and wondered, you know, who is he speaking to and who is this meant for? That's a good point. I think that because I was sitting behind a screen and kind of multitasking, taking notes, Um, winding down my day. This talk happened in the evening around 7.30, and he did go for two hours, (laughs) by the way. Um, uh, I think that maybe if I had been in the room, I would have noticed the stark contrast between 318-year-olds at UNT versus, like, a DMA crowd, which is not going to have wall to wall full seating of like students college-aged people there's going to be a lot more adults in the room um so I think I would kind of like to see him maybe in even another venue another location that doesn't have students similar like another museum setting to see if um his shtick kind of consistently aims towards the youth demographic like the future of art quote-unquote um Yeah, 
And I, frankly, I'd just like to hear some more of his anecdotes from over the years. They're pretty fun. Well, and like you said, there were some um, really nice kind of overarching messages that I think um, were accessible to anybody who was watching anybody in the crowd. Um, so I'm excited to dig into some of those with you. Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. So I was furiously typing away just some of his Jerry-isms uh, during the talk. And the ones that stuck out to me that I thought kind of had legs for art conversation um, I've brought here to this discussion. The opening statement of the talk was, quote, more changes are happening in art and art history now than have happened in 500 years, end quote. And my immediate reaction to that was to Google um, how many museums are there in the world? I heard a statistic once long ago, I should fact check that there's more libraries in the United States than there are McDonald's. Um, and that's a pretty arbitrary comparison of two sets of things. And I think it's kind of obvious. It's supposed to combat a little bit of the stereotyping of American anti-intellectualism. Um, so when I heard Jerry make this really bold claim that like, we're, we're, at this really exciting time and the pace of change has has never been faster. I wanted to find out, like, we are in modernity, right? So we must have tons and tons and tons of institutions. Um, and 55,000 sounds like a big number to me. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts, Jessica? Do you, like, do you think that we're at the most, the most changiest time in art? Oh, I don't know. It's so hard. Um, first of all, I've probably said this on the podcast before, but I'm not a fan of absolutisms. <laughs> so these kinds of grandiose statements um, that make large claims, um, I find those really difficult in general. Um, but what was really striking to me in Jerry's talk is that he made this really bold statement. And then almost immediately he went back and said that one of the most moving experiences he ever had with a work of art was seeing cave paintings. And I was like, well, hmm, that contradicts what you just said a little bit. Um, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Uh, firstly, I should agree and emphasize that this is the Jerry way. Um, you really don't know which direction you're going to get whipped into in the next moment. Um but I would like to think that those two things can don't have to be mutually exclusive. You know, um, we can be living through X, Y, and Z types of times. Um, and cave paintings can still be super moving. I haven't seen any cave paintings, but I think you have, Jessica, right? Yeah, yeah, I have. And I do think that they're incredibly moving. And, and I agree with what you're saying, William. Like, we can be moving in fastly changing times and still look back at work from thousands of years ago um, and be moved by those and still feel that those are some of the most important things um, that we've seen. But I guess for me, thinking about the history of human time and human creation, 
because what we have is such a small percent of perhaps what was even made, it's almost like how can we even know what the changes were and how quickly they were going? Yeah, that's true. Sometimes I think about, um, you know, like artifacts from millennia past that we haven't quite figured out what they are or what they were meant for. Um, like uh, the Voynich manuscripts comes to mind, uh, the Baghdad battery. Uh, that's a really fascinating Wikipedia page if you've never looked it up. It's basically just, a, it looks like a cell that could be used for um, ch- creating a charge using an alkali solution, but it's so old and corroded. Um, like we really have no way of knowing what it's for. If, you know, if they were really creating batteries in Baghdad 2000 years ago, that would be a pretty exciting time to be alive, right? Um, so I guess I can empathize with with your frustration at like totalizing statements. Um, he just He just came in so strong <laughs> and so bold. I was like, there's even if it's even if it's sort of like a fatuous statement, I feel like, wow, there's got to be something behind that. And yeah, granted, like we know that technology has vastly improved over the last hundred years and art is so closely tied to technology and science and society and things that are happening and changing. So it makes sense. Um but it's just hard for me to to say 100% yes. I agree with Jerry Saltz on this. Well, I want to challenge you with another statement from Jerry then. <laughs> so the next statement that I wrote down is, quote, it's very interesting when things are just called dead, end quote. And I'll set this up a little bit. He was talking about... Um, kind of when inside of art, and perhaps outside of art, uh, things are claimed to be like over or dead. And so specifically, he's talking about the the through line of when painting was referred to as being dead, and then subsequently, when the author was claimed to be dead. Um, and he does kind of give some timeline reference for these statements but for the most part what I'm leaning on is that like those two things kind of come from each other and also the certainty that a medium can be called dead when things are being dismissed that almost signals that they're at an inflection point of becoming relevant again do you relish when when art forms are dismissed or do you get frustrated at that like what do you think well I guess um you know going back to my earlier statement yeah it's probably something that that more frustrates me um initially because because it is that kind of a big statement that almost ends a conversation right it's like a punctuation um it's saying painting is dead there's nothing left to say or do in that medium and therefore it's irrelevant to even talk about it. Um, so I think like the statement itself, those types of statements are also frustrating for me. Um, but yeah, I can see how like 
what that signifies is that we're at a turning point and that maybe we're like at the bottom of a hill and about to turn up and uh, see a bunch of new and exciting things coming out. Just at the end of last year, I was listening to the Articles of Interest uh, podcast series on the history of American Ivy League fashion, which later became like an American genre of fashion that we colloquially refer to as prep. Um, It's a really interesting series. I do recommend it. And in that, there's this whole discussion of like the history of fashion trends and like how they've been managed and predicted and kind of created in the past. Of course, nowadays with the advent of fast fashion, um, these cycles are all like super powered and really fast. Uh, But one of the things that the host encountered during this investigation was that there's actual firms that process data and they are the ones that kind of mediate what was bought and what will be bought, um, even down to more abstract uh, parameters like popularity and desirability. Uh, There's actual firms that crunch numbers on this and then they spit out reports and then fashion houses take note of that stuff. I didn't think it was so scientific or like materially recorded in that way. Um, you know, we work in art. We we kind of deal with uh, things get popular organically. People succeed um, in the cultural sphere for a whole variety of reasons. So uh, I guess I'm just kind of setting that up to say, like, I would agree with you, Jessica. I don't really like the notion of calling something dead and then being like, okay, that chapter's closed. We're not talking about that anymore. Um, But I do think it is useful in the sense of like, if you're in art and culture for the long haul, if you're kind of a lifer, you know that cycles happen. Um, And when people start to say like, oh, this is out. Or if people start to say something is like, cheesy or needs updating um those are interesting clues that not only that attitudes have shifted but that something is coming up as a consequence of those things um so i mean maybe i'm just extrapolating things out of jerry's words that he didn't quite intend but um his reference to painting and authorship as going through cycles of like I don't know, usefulness, desirability, being cool or not. Um, I just, it just kind of set me on a path. <laughs> okay, and so the final statement that really uh, caught my attention from last night is, quote, I do not want to walk around with the dealer, the gallerist, or the collector, close quote. And I might be paraphrasing that a teensy bit, Um I was typing very quickly as he was as he was talking. The gist here that he was getting at is that he wants fresh eyes. He wants to experience art kind of like, I don't know, untainted by opinion, perhaps. Um, and he gave an anecdote about how he was visiting with Matthew Wong and the gallerist 
or the dealer made a comment that kind of was sort of supposed to impact his opinion of the artist. Um, And he doesn't say this like angrily. He's just saying that like to experience art, I need to do it purely. Um, And so I can imagine why he would want to shy away from dealing with the commercial side of art. Um, Is that how you go about seeing shows, Jessica? Sometimes you can't avoid the gallerist. They're the ones that open the doors, right? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I think as much as possible, I try to come to works of art fresh without any context um, so that I can start to look at it, you know, as Jerry said, with fresh eyes, so that when I start to look at it, I'm coming at it with my own perspective. Um, I'm taking it in and having my own unique experience. But that being said, at some point, either during the looking process or after the looking process, I really enjoy going in, looking at artist websites, reading about the artist's intention to see if what they intended is what I got from it. And if not to help myself understand like where that disconnect is. Um, I think that both things are important. What about you? I mean, this is an interesting point. This is an interesting like topic because we all enter art from different ways, you know? Um, And Jessica, you have like a little bit of a museum background I kind of got my start in the galleries, um, if I if I want to simplify it to like a sentence. I've spent more time in the galleries as an art lover, as a worker, as a writer, than I have um, maybe engaged with museums, perhaps. And so like the personality behind art and the people around it like are very compelling to me. Um, And let's be honest, if you want to write about work, if you want to write about art uh, and kind of engage that way, you're going to need to talk to some administrators because they have all of the details. And artists, of course, are great people to talk to in general, but they do not always have all of the details that you need when you're fact checking things. Um, That's what their gallerists are for. That's what their curators are for. So... I mean, I guess I guess it kind of depends on the medium of art or the genre of art. There's definitely some experiences. Um, like when I first saw Arthur Jaffa's Love is the Message, the Message is Death, that was pretty unmediated. I did see it in a museum, um, but nobody was like talking to me about it. And that was like such an impactful, especially the first time I saw that. It was just so impactful and felt groundbreaking that... I think if I had been on a tour or something, I wouldn't have hated it, but I would probably be so distracted by the compelling work. I would have the reaction of like, maybe just don't talk to me until I'm done absorbing this. And then we can talk later. Um, but, But at the same time, there's definitely shows where I have like the opposite reaction. I walk in and I'm like, I need an adult. Um, can somebody talk to me, please? So it just depends. I don't I don't mind being approached and asked uh, in whatever art space I'm in. Just be wary that 
there's a possibility that me or anyone else seeing the show might say like, you know what, I'm really kind of processing this right now. I don't, I don't really need any context at this moment. I'll, I'll come back later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, when I worked in museums, one of the um, things that I was trying to understand is what kind of labels the general visitor would like to see alongside a work of art. So we did like a small test and we had a single work of art and we had four or five different kinds of labels for people to read and had them vote on which ones they liked the most. And I was really surprised that most of the people who read the labels um, really liked the kind of what I would call like a flowery description of the artwork. Um, And then we started to kind of ask people why. And what we found is that, you know, some people, sure, they liked the history, they liked the context. Um, Some people didn't want to read anything at all. Um, But for people who were really unfamiliar with art, having that guidance of how to look at a work of art and to kind of have somebody point out for them the important visuals in the piece um, to look at was a really helpful scaffolding of their art experience. So that was kind of surprising to me, and it's something that I try to keep in mind, um, both in art writing and in art education when I'm engaging with people. Yeah, it's such a, like, rich challenge in art, Um, like, from writing a wall label to writing a press release to writing a review. uh, You want people to read it. It's kind of there to help people sort of navigate what this object is or what it means or what it does. Um, And like, that's such an interesting story, Jessica. That's such an interesting point. It reminds me of visiting the MFAH over Christmas and seeing the Philip Guston show. And I loved all of the flowery wall labels, but they're not present on every single piece or even every single like wall. So then I started to think like, well, how come this piece that I'm really drawn to doesn't have a flowery wall label for me to read about? Um, And I'm certainly not a scholar on Philip Guston's work, um, but it's just interesting to think about how like perhaps the art goer that has the least exposure to art history or institutional presentations of art it's interesting to think that those people are like the most open to just being talked to and, and engaged with in the work. It's just something to remember that like for those of us that do this for a living, there's always a demographic that you're not in tune with. And so we should all remain open and flexible and, you know, friendly Myself personally, I'm not afraid of context. I generally appreciate it. So yeah. And so just to close out the conversation here, I have one more uh, statement from Jerry Saltz's talk at the DMA uh, this past Thursday. And it goes, quote, art is part of a cosmic force. It is self-replicating, end quote. And with that, we thank you for joining us today on this discussion. We encourage you to go see Jerry if he comes to your town. Um, He's a great time. 
very friendly. Go get a selfie with him. He most likely will do it. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of Art Dirt. In the meantime, please check out our statewide events calendar for museum exhibitions, gallery shows, everything in between across the entire state of Texas. And go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.